This is a Clark University podcast. RFU contains grown-up themes and occasional coarse language when they get carried away. Please take care while listening. Hi, professors. This is Sav Doobie. And this is Liza French. We are MCA alumni who graduated from Clark University in 2019. Recommended for you this week is Shiva Baby from 2020, made in the United States and directed by Emma Seligman. The film stars Rachel Sennett, Molly Gordon, and Diana Agron. And we're recommending this film because, on my part, this film affected me physically in a way I could have never anticipated. And I also think it's kind of hypnotic and confusing and beautiful. And I think it has something that I can't put my finger on that is essential to this moment right now and to how I feel personally. I was really struck by the soundtrack in this film and how it affected my perception of its genre. So I'm excited for you all to listen for that reason. On a more personal level, I think it's rare for me to feel directly hailed by a film, and this film made me feel like it's made for people like me, even if I've never been in this precise situation, and that was super exciting. This. This. This is recommended for you. For you. For you. A podcast where Clark University Screen Studies professors watch and discuss films suggested by Clark University students. Welcome to RFU. Season 2. Episode 1. <laughs> I'm Soren Sorensen. I'm Rock Sommer. And I'm Cy Abelman. No. <laughs> I'm Hugh Mannon. Shiva Baby. I'm glad that HBO went the route of um, not only explaining what a Shiva is in the logline of this film. As um, I, I have to say, I knew what a Shiva was before I, I, I read this logline. Um, but also, you have uh, the the lead actor, uh, Rachel Sennett, um, in like a... She's holding a bagel with locks and onion and maybe capers and some cream cheese or something um, in in the shot. So it's pretty on the nose, like the marketing for for uh, for the film. And, and it's not really a still from it, it's it's like a fantasy. It's not a still from the film at all. It's just kind of they dressed her up in this strange way. So um, so what did we think of this uh, of this film? You should watch this film before you listen to this podcast. And it's a 77 minute commitment. There is so much jammed into 77 minutes in this film. It's not even a feature length film. Like it's shocking to me how much goes on. It feels like a full two hour film. Yes. And it's like a little over an hour. Amazing. And Hugh, tell us about the students who recommended this film and, and why you think they may have done so. So uh, the two students who recommended this film are former, former honors advisees of mine. Uh, Sav Doobie and Liza French, both former students, now alum uh, from Clark University. And um, these students met, I know for a fact, they're, they're besties now, but they met in my MCA 101 class. And the reason I think they suggested this film, now this is a pretty you know, lightweight reason to suggest a film that's got all sorts of interesting things going on in it. But the reason I think they suggested the film is that Danielle, the protagonist, would have been a Clark MCA major. <laughs> and, and the reason I say that is because there's this whole long extended discussion in the film of what her major is or was, because she's about to graduate <laughs> or just graduated. And so the discussion is hilarious. You're studying business? <laughs> no, not business. No, no. She's studying gender. The business of gender. It's like um, gender business. She does this fantastic program where you kind of design oh, your own major. It's a little complex when it comes to finding employment, but she's doing terrifically. Well, it can get a job for a lot of people. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. You are going to make your own job 
right? Because you're so talented. It's absolutely the greatest. And I, and I think it puts a really fine point on these kind of like insipid, really instrumental discussions of what a college degree does for a person. Mm. And I, I just, it, it's one of the greatest, like, like, I think it's a real get back for every student who has ever had to explain to like senior adults what they're doing in college. And it's, it's just, if there's one thing this film, I mean, maybe better even than The Graduate. This film mm. nails that whole awkward conversation absolutely perfectly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like a horror movie where the monster is anxiety or something, or like social anxiety. I've had versions of these conversations, you know, throughout my adult life, you know. So it's very, I think, very relatable. And, you know, um, she, she could have, she could also be claimed by other departments and, and programs at Clark, um, political science, possibly women and gender studies. Definitely. Um, a, she's clearly a self-design major. Um, so there are lots of different programs that could probably claim her as a, as a star student. But the line of work, the line of work she's setting up for <laughs> is to lead, lead protest marches. That's what she's going to yes. do professionally, yes. according yeah. to all these adults. Via, via publishing and babysitting. The, the, those marches with the pink pussy hats, because as Maya says... <laughs> You love marches and you love knitting. knitting. <laughs> <Am I a laughs> gotta give the pause. You gotta give the pause. It's one of my favorite lines. It's so funny. Um, yeah, I mean, MCA are, you know, we've got two of the central faculty of the MCA major here on this call. And I think we should appropriate her uh, retort to her parents when they say, What are you gonna do with this feminism thing? How are you gonna make money on feminism? And she says, it's not a career. It's a lens. It's a lens, right? I love that. <laughs> yeah, that was wonderful. Um, which is also like bonus points for like if she was an MCA major using lens as a metaphor uh, when too, too off. It's a dangerous metaphor in our field uh, when it could also be quite literal. I got. I have an MA in art with a concentration in media studies. And when somebody had to ask me that question, you know, what is media studies? It, you know, you, you have this, you could have a sentence where you can say, well, it's the, the modes and methods of machinery by which uh, human beings apprehend reality or something, you know, like you can say that, but even then, like those, then that will fly over somebody's head or they don't understand. Like, well, why would you study that? <laughs> and then of course, how will you monetize it? Yeah. How will you monetize it? I mean, and yeah, that's, well, that's the real question. Everybody's yeah. concern at the party is how are you going to turn this into something that you can make money off of? Yeah. Of course. Yeah. So now we can say uh, that Danielle is making money, but Danielle is making money in a very interesting way. Not by way of the business of gender, but by way of the business of sex. Absolutely yes. correct. And disguising it as babysitting, claiming that claiming to everybody publicly that she's making money babysitting when in fact this is really this is where things get complicated. There's this question in my mind as to whether she is just flat out uh, a sex worker in a completely unapologetic way. And maybe the problem here is like, I sort of came to the conclusion. I'll just float this as kind of like a sub thesis that Max thinks she's a sex worker. And she thinks that Max is either her sugar daddy or flat out her lover who just happens to supply her with cash here and there. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I'll say a couple of things here. When I first watched the film and I did watch it like two and a half times, uh, I've had a good week. <laughs> the film opens with a sex scene. I like to say in media sex. That's a good pun. I don't know if it is. And you're like, okay, they're hooking up. But uh, it ends with her before she leaves collecting money. And I'm like, okay, she does sex work. Uh, but later, uh, upon my second watch, 
I noticed that, like, the first time I watched it, I didn't catch a glimpse of what Maya sees when she finds Danielle's phone and sees evidence of sex work. I thought it was the sex, uh, the sexies, the selfies that uh, Danielle had taken earlier in that bathroom when she left the phone there. But in fact, it's like notifications from a, I guess I'll use the word dating loosely, a dating app uh, that seems to be structured on the premise on the like sugar daddy premise. Okay, like what kind of offer, what, what kind of arrangement are you looking for? Right. Is one of them. Yeah. And, is one of yeah. them. So I, yeah, I, I think, but I, I think it's purposefully not vague. Necessarily. vague. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, but there's a lot, there's a lot to this film that's sort of in the like indie tradition is like left open ended, yep. mm. like from start to finish. Uh, we are not given beginnings or endings to any of the narrative threads we're presented with, but sort of enter in the middle and and proceed through yeah, the yeah. middle. Uh, but I would sort of like kind of push back on your characterization, or at least my understanding of Max's. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty uh, and gray area, but there is this comment when he's using babysitting euphemistically that suggests that he has real mm -hmm. feelings for her, or at least hopes that she has real feelings for him. Uh, because I think there's a sense of maybe him feeling used. Yeah. Uh, but he says, you must really love this kid <laughs> uh, to be babysitting him when you don't even need the money. Because right. he, he learns at the Shiva that uh, her parents pay for everything. Whereas he was under the premise that she was like a law student with big, you know, with student loans and the like, uh, that he was helping support. I also, what I reflecting on this sort of premise of sugar daddy, sex work, what I really appreciate upon second watch was this uh, reframing of that payment or that compensation in that we learned that his wife, who's also there, uh, who also shows up to the Shiva a little bit later, uh, is the money maker of the household. So ostensibly, who is actually paying Danielle where these funds come from is this like hardworking businesswoman uh, who might have feelings about her husband cheating on her, but also might be having feelings about where her money, her hard-earned dollars are going. Maya says she uh, might be the best-looking person I've ever seen. <laughs> that, that's another yeah. thing. She's so attractive that it's like obvious, and she's the only person who's blonde in the whole room. Maybe, and you know, yeah, it's 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 pretty wild. Yeah, the conversation between Maya and Danielle when they're um, sort of assessing and trying to pigeonhole the Shishka. Uh, Wife, Shiksa. Shiksa. This Shiksa wife is completely like it's the, one of the greatest scenes in the film. She's just like generic looking. She's like generic pretty. She's she could possibly be the most beautiful person I've ever seen. Seriously, I just wouldn't be into her. Is what I'm saying. She has like the essence I want in 15 years. What? Like boring, <laughs> boring like wife who like doesn't have sex and is like mean. No, she's like a hot businesswoman, basically a single mom, so stressed out, but you can't tell. It's like goals. She's not a businesswoman. She's yeah, like a she is, she's an entrepreneur. No, she's not. Yeah, my mom told me she has like three businesses, but that's what I'm saying. You can't tell because she's so chill about it. Why does she have three? Like, 
Do they all just like fail? Okay, you're projecting like a lot of misogyny for like a future women's march organizer. The dialogue in this film is just extraordinary. My appreciation for the dialogue and the writing of the script, it's something that's grown with rewatching. It should be noted that the director is also the screenwriter. And that is like, like I wouldn't cut a single line. No. Like, it's all genius. Yeah. So tight. It's all brilliant. It's, an hour it's and all 17 hilarious. Minutes or something, right? And it's, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And a lot of talking. Yeah. I say that now, but upon first viewing, I was like, there's a, especially in that first 10 minutes, there's a lot of expository dialogue, which we're all like told if you've taken a screenwriting class, you know, like you should show, show not tell. tell. Right? Like, establish who these characters are, what this premise is, this setting, use the camera, use editing. But this is the trick. You think you're getting expository dialogue. Like, you think you're being told this is a law student doing sex work to pay off her student loans. But in fact, what you're learning, but you don't know it yet, is that this is the premise that, like, Max is working under. Uh, And in fact... um, this sort of duplicity and this misunderstanding is going to be central to the development of the plot. And everybody's lying. I mean, you know, so yeah. so Maya, Maya, the the ex girlfriend in this scenario, is lying w- in her treatment um, of Danielle. Uh, you know, kind of being really aggressive and kind of like mean and and sort of really taking it to her when they first um, when they first are, are are together, sort of in in the house. Hi, hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Um, I'm good. I'm really good. Um, yeah, you seem it. I'm good. Congrats on law school. That's really great. Thanks. That only took you like four fucking months. How is she lying? I just mean like not showing her true feelings because by the by the you know by the second by the end of the second act, it's clear that they miss each other. Then they're it's it's clear that that they want to be together, but they're kind of in a way they're not showing their true selves at all and that's a form of lying right i mean it's it's the same way max is lying by by sort of pretending that he's successful or pretending that you know they're setting him up like he's this great you know he has this great job prospect for her possibly and all this kind of thing when really we find out that he his his expensive food habits are being bankrolled by his beautiful wife right um so it's it's there's a lot of that kind of um you know yeah uh, 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 well is he a foodie or is he a foodie <laughs> well he likes expensive <laughs> restaurants not... and who doesn't I, I don't i don't think that, that but does I, he i don't think that makes it one a foodie necessarily no yeah, so the no. so the so the foodie so she yes, calls the, she calls him a right. foodie, but he's spending it on that's sex. That's exactly well, it, right? Yeah. So, well, so when she we don't says know how that, much, I mean, he's probably he's probably a little of both. Yeah, I just took yeah. that as you, you're you're, <laughs> absolute, you're supposed to make that equation between what he's saying to his wife is his sort of foodie foodie indulgences yeah. is actually the money that Danielle. he's paying to Danielle. Yeah, yeah, and and well, food is sex, and and also. Uh, you know the 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 babysitting is sex as well, so it's this yeah. this whole idea of and Shiva baby is probably or you know probably meant to be a a pun or you know something that sounds like sugar daddy, um and and then there's a baby <laughs> at the Shiva. It's like who brings a baby to the Shiva? So it's like you're kind of in a way like you're being your your attention is being drawn into different places where it doesn't belong, which the baby is sort of like not even important except for to the sound design, um, yep. which I could go on and on about. Um, yes. but the, it's not about the baby. But I think when because of the title, in some ways an audience member might think, well, there's something about the baby. Something's going to happen to the baby. or And then by the end, the baby is quite re- actually in danger, like has been splashed with hot coffee. Um, and then Danielle's holding her, and they're fighting over the baby by the end of the film. So, um, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, I also think the baby 
is Danielle. For sure. So like Oh yeah, yeah. You know, so there's so there's these plot lines with Max and whether the nature of their relationship is going to be revealed to all there or not. There's this like reconnection with her high school ex-girlfriend Maya. Will they rekindle that love? And then there's this relationship with her parents and they're all bound up together. Mm-hmm. But one of one of the film's climaxes, and I do have a joke here, which is this film has many climaxes, like any good bisexual woman. <laughs> sorry. Uh, sorry. I <laughs> came up with it five minutes ago. I had to work it in. But there's like multiple, there are these like multiple, the, the spilling of the coffee yeah. is like a climax of sorts. There's the let's make a baby shake song moment, which is what I'm thinking of. Um, and then there's the knocking over of the prayer books. And and so following that baby song <laughs> moment with her parent, everyone's there sitting, you know, standing around her chanting and she explodes and her, her conflict with her mother, like, can be boiled down to to her question of her, like, you, do you still see me as a child? Yep. I'm, I'm just a baby to you, aren't I? Um, so I think that's. That's another baby going on here. And related to what you characterized as lying earlier, Soren, I found it really charming, but also off-putting, if that's possible. Um, the way that like Maya and Danielle revert to like high school girl talk. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. We've we we've got a sense that they're both, you know, they're about twenty-two, they're exiting college, Maya's on en route to law school, and they're very as far as we capable, know. grown <laughs> as far as we know, grown grown women who can have really thoughtful and articulate uh conversations. And yet when they get together that like that animosity man and and ten- sexual tension, emotional tension, like manifests in like eight, like reverting to like seventeen year old, eighteen oh, yeah. year old, like girl talk, where they're just like petty, vicious. Every every <laughs> like, single thing that girls. comes out of their mouth is just snarling, <laughs> mean, a jab, a jab. Yeah. yeah, right. I really felt that Maya was uh, sort of bullying her though. Like I didn't, I didn't find it charming. So that's, I mean, maybe that's why I, I sort of, I had a negative perception of that because it, it felt like she was. This person's dealing with a bunch of other things. Danielle was, and now she has this other person who's going to like pile on um, and and make her life miserable, kind of. Yeah. So, but that's because we're you know Danielle's our protagonist, and we know what she's. We we're starting to get a sense at that point, even though it's early on, that we know what like sort of the mess that is Danielle's life. Yeah. But I read that animosity is having to do with those unresolved backstories where like, how did this relationship end? Mm -hmm. And so I imagine in my head (laughs) that Danielle broke Maya's heart. Mm. And so while Maya might, from the perspective of the family and the people at the Shiva, you know, have her life together and be the powerful figure, I think in Maya's own head, she's not the powerful figure. Mm. Right. And that's why she's lashing out and being aggressive. Um, I don't know. I'm also so charmed by Molly Gordon. Uh, this is her second role that I've loved her in. She she plays Annabelle in Booksmart. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and so I'm like a third of the way into this movie, I had to pause it and be like, who is this? Because I adore her, but I can't huh, place yeah. her. And I'm like, of course. Oh, she's great. I mean, by, and by, that's it's one of the it's one of my favorite characters. I mean, it's it's a it's an ensemble film for sure. But I, her character, because she goes from being kind of like strong-willed or kind of bullying in a way but then it's it's very yes. so, and becomes very soft and very um vulnerable yes thank you very much like, vulnerable right? <laughs> yeah yeah both her characters in book smart and in this are like 
tough, aggressive, I've got my shit together, I know who I am, women who then reveal the like softer side. Yeah. So in, in a sense, though, everybody's a baby, right? So so it's like, I know, I, I, again, if you said, say, like, who's the baby here? It's, it's Danielle. She's the title character, all this kind of thing. But, um, you know, in a way, because of the equation of, of Max being, a, a, you know, her... Um, her client, quote unquote, as a, and she's a babysitter. Like he clearly is, is sort of referred to as one. There's an actual baby, right? So it's like this idea that like human beings are just babies and they're not ready for what they're what they're tasked with. Um, and the bickering among the couples and the, you know the, the the grownups and the middle aged people in the um, in the room is is, is is evidence of that as well. But I, yeah, I, I I love the name of the film. And and when I I think when I first heard the name, I thought it was like Shiva comma baby, like Shiva baby, like that kind of thing. <laughs> Which it's not that. But anyway, you could. Draw draw a parallel between the kind of shift between um, Daniela and Maya's snarling, you know, high school attitude and this kind of tenderness that emerges in certain scenes. And it kind of goes back and forth a couple times, actually. And also, and I'm going to constantly want to push this in the direction of like the parents, because I find the parents absolutely fascinating in this film and they do the same thing. Right. So there's a kind of like mercenary, snarky, somewhat mean-spirited, jabby, gossipy attitude that the parents give off with respect to each other, with respect to their elders, with respect to their youngers. It just constantly is there in these discussions that are going, you know, even to the point that, and I'm going to forget the character's name, but the um, blonde friend of Danielle's mother, um, when the baby comes in, it's like, who the fuck brings a baby to a shiva? (laughs) And, And it's just this sort of nastiness. But then... You'll get these pivots where the parents are unbelievably kind, understanding the good parent, you know, and especially Danielle's mother sort of swoops in at exactly the right moment and says, no, 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 look, I don't expect any of these things from you. You know, you're 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 sort of like putting too much pressure on yourself, et cetera. And so I think those shifts uh, are really kind of the engine that drives the film. Polly Draper, um, who who I'm sure oh Hugh God. knows and I know uh, from thirty something. <gasps> I rocks you're just younger, you know. It's it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> she. I mean, I if I if you could adopt. Oh my God, my mother listens to this. I don't know if I should say, but if one could adopt a second mom, I would adopt Polly Draper. She plays. Uh, so she's remarkable in yeah. this. Film. She's an obvious child um, too, right? She, yeah, yes, yeah, she great. plays Jenny Slate's mom, yeah. an obvious child. Yeah, and that like, do I disappoint you, mom? Scene that we that's very abbreviated yeah. here to reference another line in the film, but greatly adapted. It's like uh, if kissing Jessica Stein, an obvious child, had an even more Jewish baby. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we get two actor, we get an actor from each of those films. We get yeah. Polly Draper again playing the best Jewish mom ever, and we get Jackie Hoffman who in kissing Jessica Stein as the pregnant best friend mm. learning of Jessica's like bisexual awakening and having her mind blown. And, and in here she plays the clueless friend who's like, what sweet girls? <laughs> um, and isn't really in on the back history as much as uh, a few of the others. Uh, yeah. Um, um, by way of there. full disclosure, I used to work with Danny DeFerrari who plays Max in this film Oh wow! Um, at, oh at Balthazar restaurant. Yeah. No in, in Soho. And I, what's really, really strange, I must have face blindness or whatever that condition is. I, I watched the entire film the first time and didn't recognize him. And then the second time around, 
I had gone on IMDb in between, you know, viewings. And then I, I was like, oh, Danny DeFerrari, where do I know him from? And I click on that. I click on like his, his name thinking I'll see different credits that I know him from. And I was like, oh no, I, I know him. Like I actually, know, like I worked with him 10 years ago or 13 or 14 years ago or something. Yeah. So it was kind of strange, but it was, it was great. Also just the 30 the something connection and Fred melamed has been in a million things. And um, I thought the cast was wonderful. I mean, this, this is not, I, I, I sometimes joke with um my, my intro students that like, I kind of, and I'm sure you, you do the same thing, which is like you, you feel like over analysis can like sap the joy out of um, watching films for some people and, and maybe maybe for us and to a certain degree. Um, I couldn't help but think about how difficult this shoot must have been with all of these people in some degree of formal wear. There's tons of food wow. um, and they're in this t- this house that's not it's not a gigantic space. I mean, it's a big house for four people or five people, but it's not a big space for a party and like a bunch of extras and a crew. Um, and so for a 200,000 thousand dollar film to come off like this um in that space and have that kind of where it doesn't it the anxiety that you feel is is meant to be there i had this extra layer of anxiety thinking well i would have knocked over a c-stand like within three minutes of being on this set probably um so i i I have to hand it to the ad and the and the dp and all the people that worked on this film because it was an incredible crew there there are scenes though in early in that kind of buffet sequence where the 180 degree rule just gets balled up and thrown out the window. Like they just <laughs> can't great. do it. Yeah, they just yeah. can't do it. And I think it does. I actually do think yeah. it energizes the film and it makes it feel off kilter mm-hmm. and really weird. But but when it needed to be there it was there. I think when I there agree. were conversations between like five people, they occupied their space really well, I think. But you're right. Yep. It's supposed to feel disorienting. Um and the geography's not maintained and and yeah, it's 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 mind bending in a way. And it do, it does kind of owe I think it does owe a lot to to horror movies. I mean, I don't yeah. I, I I think that the music is a is a, is a horror movie music. I mean, it's very sparse um and kind of and 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 atonal at times yep, um, it is. and and noisy and great and it's just the one composer Ariel Marks and did most of this stuff herself I believe there was a wow. percussionist um, for some of it as well but it's like synthesizer and strings and and she did it all by herself um, that last and, sequence uh, by the way I, I think that thing that we're talking about with the food yeah <laughs> where, where yeah. it seems hallucinatory and it's weird really and grotesque, wide angle right. isn't yeah. that now I haven't seen Rosemary's Baby in a long time but isn't that a lift from Rosemary's Baby where we get all the the neighbors who are sort of being depicted in this really weird bowed out wide angle persecution sequence i don't know yeah. i mean there's a lot going well terry on. gilliam yeah. that, that reminded me of brazil and a fear and loathing in las vegas too like this idea of of aging like it's like people of a certain age eating food and and then and then shot in this kind of distorted like wide angle way but really close up um yeah and it's and it's heightened and i think it also feels a lot like a drug movie that's why yeah. fear and loathing in las vegas kind of just leapt into my consciousness totally. um but this reminded me of of mother darren aronofsky's mother Requiem for a Dream, which is also Darren Aronofsky, and also Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, because it's this single location thing where there yeah. is a series of things. There's a, there's this one oh big God. thing that that only a few people know, or yeah, two people know, and yeah. one person maybe knows, and and you're and it's this again cat and mouse, cat and mouse. Only who's the cat and who's the mouse, um, which is the the line that Jimmy Stewart says in the film. Um, but I I don't I don't know what films this reminded you of but um for sure this like i don't know it felt it felt a lot like a horror movie and i, I loved that about it it didn't it, yep. you know yeah. it yep. didn't have gore or anything like that but that 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 scene with the food was very grotesque yeah i mean the the interesting comparison to rope or, or something more dramatic is that we don't get the big so like my many climax comment aside or perhaps it's indicative of this is that we don't have a burst where like people directly confront each other 
And despite how much dialogue there is and how much is said and how much, you know, how forthcoming uh, all these folks are with each other in certain regards, the frank discussion of sex between her and her mother, right? Um, There still isn't this confrontation, you know, like Max's wife, I believe her name's Kim, doesn't say you're sleeping with my husband. Like there, it's, there's a sense that everyone is putting together the puzzle pieces, but there isn't uh, much direct confirmation as mu- of as much, never mind this bursting forth of truth. No, it's it's passive aggressive and it's knowing yeah. glances. Does um, she and know? The, and the, well, at, by the end of the yeah. film, she does think know. she knows. I mean, I, I think I think you're supposed to under, understand that she knows, but she's also kind she's of like the babysitting. Yeah. Well, how how could how could this be? I mean, in, in a way, but it's the bracelet. It starts with the bracelet, right? Yeah. And then it's mm-hmm. and then it goes and goes and goes from there. And then and then Danielle says sorry to her on the way out of the kitchen toward the end of the film, which is amazing because it's like, well, what is she saying sorry for? It's like there's so many things, um, spilling coffee on your baby, or you know, there's like all these different things that she could be saying sorry for when really it's the one thing. Um, uh, yep. which is just incredible because it's such a throwaway line. She says it on her way out the door. Um, but yeah, and then they ride home together in the car. It's very, it's very, it's, yeah, the blowups are are internal and that become, it's it's Danielle's internal mind that, that becomes externalized. Her, her internal emotions and her panic <laughs> and her anxiety, all of a sudden it, it, it erupts in things breaking and coffee spilling and things falling over. And what? how else do you deal with that? I mean, how, yeah. do you feel like you've ever been in a situation like this where it's like, can we go and then like an hour goes by? Have you ever been in a situation like that? It's at a family function? It's the yeah. worst. It's brutal. Like, why I can't you just say goodbye? Right. Irish yeah, exit, yeah. man. Just don't even yes, say goodbye. Yes, Walk out. Absolutely, like I, yeah. I cannot handle long goodbyes. It's it's no, truly what aligns me Although you and Larry I love David. the film, The Long Goodbye. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's really strange. Because right. a long goodbye is one of my least favorite social phenomena. Oh. Like, I cannot deal with it. No. Um, but the film is great. Yeah. I think that, yeah. and the film does this amazing twist at the end, right? Which is it takes this highly constrained. So we talked about you know it being sort of like rope uh and rope of course we tend to think of as a one set film but of course there actually is an opening shot that's outside the apartment that establishes it Mm -hmm. so it's actually kind of a two-shot film and this is a two-shot film because we get everything or a two sequence two location film two location everything inside the house and then out on the street as they jam into this astro minivan (laughs) and drive away with fred melamed the great actor you know I, i mentioned cy abelman from uh a serious man, the Coen Brothers film. Right, right. So, yeah. so Fred Melamed in this role is so on the money, impotent dad, you know, who can't have his say in anything. And then ultimately he packs <laughs> everybody into the van and drives away. And so they shrink the set. They make it more claustrophobic as if that was even possible. Yeah. We talked about the soundtrack and that horror score is so pervasive whenever Danielle is inside the house if by house we mean like the open public spaces so there's also i was noticing these moments when she or maya or she and max like go to the bathroom by which i mean (laughs) i largely mean enter that room Mm. not use the toilet um and then there's also an earlier outdoor scene which is when maya and her have their like reconnection kiss and in those scenes i'm pretty sure there is no like no music, no mm. score at all. And then when we are in that claustrophobic van at the very end, uh, is there score 
and baby screaming, or does the baby screaming take over for the score? But the baby screaming does a lot of work in this film. I mean, that's like it, it's it becomes really grotesque. Like at the point where maybe when she exits the bathroom and they're talking, and it, there's a conversation about her that's out of focus in the background, and she's yes. basically like almost staring into the camera. I mean, she's in the foreground in focus and just hyperventilating essentially, and there and you can hear her mother um, talking to a friend or another family member about you know about her and it's all about her it's very invasive too i mean even even her mother you know we like this actor for sure but like the way that the way that she talks about her like maybe she has a she has an eating disorder and yeah. and where it, she's so skinny and all this stuff and all of those comments get so they get so much more aggressive and more kind of grotesque and cartoonish it's kind of um, it's done in that way you know, 70s movies used to do this a lot. I'm thinking of like French Connection 2 or something. Mm. We'll see somebody up, we'll see Danielle really close, but we hear the conversation that's going on across the room crystal clear. Mm. And I think that that's, you know, in terms of sound design, that's the that's the great trope in this film is that, you know, that someone of her age and of her mindset is so attuned to what other people are saying about her that that's all that gets heard. And of course, yeah. it's all just incredibly hurtful, terrible stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that goes back to Altman. I mean, that reminds me of Nashville. Speaking of another film with like tons of characters and speak with speaking roles and names and stuff, it's oftentimes they're speaking at the same time. This film doesn't do that. I think it's more controlled in the way that it does it. But you're absolutely right. Where there's the the visual track and the audio track are doing two very separate things, and it's and it's important for you to pay attention to both. Um, obviously, you're going to look at the protagonist, but you're hearing all of these sort of awful things said about her under the guise of yeah. love. Like, we love this person, we're yeah. concerned about her, but it's all just out in the open, and it's so invasive, and she keeps getting touched, and it's very uncomfortable mm. to, to watch and to, to be with her in, for sure. Um, yeah. So I want to make sure to get on my uh, queer film professor stepping stool you <laughs> at could, some you could point just, here. You could have owned this podcast <laughs> the whole time, yeah. So yeah. Let's hear no, it. <laughs> there's, there's so much to say, yeah, and, I, yeah. and I think it's important to say like this is a really fascinating film for many reasons and and what's going on formally and the the story you know what's going on with her relationships with her parents queerness aside is already <laughs> a lot like uh yeah there's this question of her future um her career her possible eating disorder uh but also you know this this past um with Maya that her mother is very aware of and wary of happening yet again uh and my reference to kissing Jessica Stein an obvious child sort of places this in this film could have been or become a rom-com and i don't think it like quite goes there uh, but what it does that Kissing Jessica Stein doesn't as one of these like sort of bisexual bad objects <laughs> um, is that it really treads carefully. But I, I, I'm trying how to put this, but it's it's very aware of the issue of bisexual representability, which mm. is a term I borrow from Maria Sanfilippo in her book, The B Word, which which points to the challenge of telling bisexual stories in film, uh, which is, you know, bisexuals are underrepresented compared to like gays and lesbians. And, and part of this is bigger than like cult, what's going on in the world and our society, uh, compulsory monosexuality, by which we mean we see, our society tends to see you're straight or you're gay and mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, one or the other. Uh, and that's just the way it is, and that's normalized and naturalized just as, like, heterosexuality in its own way is. 
Your behavior right now is completely unacceptable. Okay, I think you need to relax. You don't you tell me to relax. You are flirting with everyone. You are chugging wine. You are sitting on a table. What is this? A party? And I thought I told you no funny business with Maya. I don't know what that means. Oh, yes, you do. Don't play dumb with me. I thought you were done experimenting. You think everyone that's bi is experimenting? You don't know anything. You have zero gaydar. Excuse me, kid. I lived through New York in the 80s. My gaydar is strong as a bull. When we think of film as a narrative medium, bisexuality also poses like formal challenges, right? Mm. How are you not just going to include a bisexual character who could be like, hey, I'm a bisexual, and you could be like, yay, there she is. <laughs> there he is, there they are. Uh, but also tell like a romantic plot line uh, if we're like also telling like a, a monogamous romantic story right yep. like she is going to need to end up with in like in a rom-com scenario she's gonna need to end up with a man or a woman mm -hmm. and that is going to have like high stakes for all involved right sure, yeah. um and so it's something that really frustrates with kissing jessica stein uh i mean i won't spoil it but its conclusion is disappointing to many and here it's an we're very deliberate. I think that's part of why we're not being given a rom-com, even as we're being given a story about a young woman who has sexual and romantic relations with men or women, men and women. And it's, it's fascinating that without romanticizing it too far or making too much of it, that we start in a he seemingly heterosexual sex scene and end with two women holding hands in a car yeah. mm. and it's it's not putting any pedal down too hard to, to to make to tell us what that means uh like everything else it's sort of up in the air it's not that she's leaving max and or leaving men for maya slash women this film is very sensitive to like the weaving the telling of a bisexual story as well mm -hmm. as the telling of a story of a bisexual character if that makes so sense. we're clear though um that this isn't a bad bisexual object in your in your eyes no. you thought this did a good job of representation right i just want to make sure i mean i to, to, <laughs> well, to take myself out it of it it doesn't have to be a binary will, <laughs> yeah um i i think this i think it's very it's very apparent to me that this film is thinking about this formal uh, as well, uh, this formal challenge of representing bisexuality and looking to a long history of movies fucking it up, yep. and and take offering one alternative to doing it right. I, right. I mean, I really right. do think, yeah. like you know, I mentioned this earlier, and I do think like one of the key intertexts here is the graduate, and so in that last shot, you know, they're riding off in a car yeah. facing the camera. But, you know, The Graduate is also a perfect end. The Graduate's a perfect ending. And so at the end of The Graduate, they're staring straight ahead. They have no idea what their future holds. This is, you know, this whole big romantic thing that just took place in the church is ultimately leading to what? Like to kind of like a boring marriage that ends in kind of nothing. Uh, in this film. Plastics. <laughs> in this film, <laughs> the handhold and and I think they look at each other and then the camera just cuts to black. Yes. And that strikes me as like just the per absolutely perfect way to end it, but it's actually a reverse graduate. So they're it they're is. connecting, things are happening, this is good, the initial sex scene not good. And so I think that <laughs> it it kind of just flips those terms and ends in a really good positive way, but very attenuated, right? So it's yeah. so low key, and I just think that's 
it's beautiful. It's great. And I think it's also really respectful of the of the generations that it's representing. Um, well, well, their generation specifically, because Maya goes through this really fast. And, and in a rom-com, to me, this is sometimes the reason rom-coms don't work, which is like, Oh, they have to break up at some point. Like, so they they they're they're mean to each other. They're do, doing the catty mean girl thing. Then it's they they have they, they make out, they kiss, and they're and they're reconnected. Then Maya finds her phone, and Maya's mad about it, which of course she would be. But then she sort of is immediately it's it's about care for this person because she's she's melting down, obviously. But then they have that great conversation where you know why do you do it? Um, and it's yeah. clear that she's talking about sex work at that point. I mean, it's like, so why do you do that? It's not, it's not why do you date men? It's why, why do you take money for for having sex with Max essentially? And and because she's found this out through these text messages, um, and or, or or who knows? But but I you know it's it, I I think it's really tender the way that Maya goes goes to her and says, well I, I'm not judging. Like I just want to know because I'm curious. And like that's something that I think that their generation and our our students do really well which is like instead of immediately shutting something down they're like oh like tell me about that and then the other person will be like open to telling them about it and there's like a lot more communicating about that rather than you know keeping it behind closed doors it's not to say that people don't have massive secrets and you know and that their identities are all sorted but um i I don't know i i like that that part of it um and i thought maya's character was just so great it was such a great performance and i think you you also have to take danielle at her word so the answer to that question is why did you do it the answer is I wanted money. It felt it felt nice to have power and be appreciated. Yeah. And I think you just have to take her at her at her word. She had control over something. Yep. I mean, it's an amazing feeling, probably. Right. I don't know what that's like. <laughs> I have no control over anything. <laughs> would we would we recommend this film? It sounds like yes. I think we're, we're, we're uh, <laughs> yeah, hold wholeheartedly. The fact that it does what it does and has this many characters and this many speaking roles that are all memorable and worth talking about, and it's not a a series with 10 hours um, of, of a season and it's, and it's not a two and a half hour long film either. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, to make a film in a house, you know, with, with a small group of actors is, is, and do it this well is right. Unbelievably impressive. So hats off to everybody involved. Agree. Yeah. Really good to, to call back to these films. I've referenced many times <laughs> a great triple bill of all, what I believe are all actually quite short, films would be kissing jessica stein obvious child and shiva baby like you were in for a a treat i haven't seen kissing Um, jessica stein i need to watch that oh my god i love obvious child i've seen it like a hundred times yeah but that film's problems aside it holds a dear place in my heart uh i was interpolated or hailed uh perhaps in the same way or in a similar way that sav was with this one uh and yet i also think this film make some real great steps forward. And I think it possibly does it in dialogue with or because Jessica Stein came first. So I definitely recommend and definitely do watch before listening to this. Sav and Liza. Thank you, Sav and Liza. Thank you both. Recommended for you is a Clark University podcast. All opinions expressed are those of the faculty participants. If you'd like to recommend a film for an upcoming episode of RFU, you can leave a voicemail with your suggestion at 508-798-4355. 798-4355. The Recommended for You podcast is produced by Andrew Hart for Clark University. Music by Jimmy Jackson. RFU logo by AJ Simmons. 
Well, it's sort of like it's um like media, like, you know? No. Does Danielle wanna go to law school or grad school? Neither right now. She just um she's got a few job interviews lined up and That's great. Mm -hmm. She lost so much weight.